Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. Um, just some words of encouragement as we're worshiping this overwhelming thought of just um, we can get bogged down in this world and as we walk through a lot of craziness, discouraging times in our own lives. Um, when you're amongst this group, it's an encouraging thing uh, because we live our lives in a world full of people that are walk, walking contrary to truth. And uh, be encouraged. You, the Lord has raised you up for such a time as this, and he desires to use your life, and he is working in your life. He's here, and he wants to speak to you. So Matthew chapter 5 tonight. Um, I'm going to try to finish the chapter, see how far the Lord takes us tonight. Um, we are, if this is your first time here, we're continuing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we find ourselves um, in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. But let's pray together, and um, we will get into what the Lord has in store for us this evening. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for your spirit that has drawn us here, Lord. We know that you are good, and you're merciful, and you're kind, Lord. And as we uh, work through this text tonight, Lord, we pray that you would reveal your heart to us. Lord, that you would uh, search us, try us, and know us, Lord. Reveal to us any wicked intent within us, Lord, that we... Lord, may not have realized it was there yet, Lord. We know that you're always seeking to lead us into truth, Lord, about us, about yourself, Lord, uh, for the purpose of fellowship with you, Lord. I pray for those here this evening who are struggling with condemnation over shortcomings, Lord. We pray that they would just receive the truth, that there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, where there's true repentance, there's true forgiveness. Help us to walk in the reality of that tonight, Lord. And we ask that you would open your word, to us, Lord, that you would give us illumination and insight, Lord. We want to grow. We want to know you. Um, we want to um, we want to know what you desire of us, Lord. We want to be quick to obey. So speak to us now, in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 5, we, we've come as far as verse 12, but just for the sake of context, uh, why don't you read with me the first, the first 12 verses. It says this, in seeing the multitudes... He went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And we pick up where we uh, left off. In verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. So we find ourselves in the Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached by the pre greatest preacher to ever live, our Lord himself, Jesus Christ. 
And he is talk, we need to remember the audience. He's talking to disciples. He's talking to not just the 12 disciples. He's talking to the multitude of disciples who have heard his preaching and, and seen his miracles and know that something different is taking place. They were oppressed by the Roman government. They were discouraged and despondent with the religious system. And here comes Jesus onto the scene and he's preaching the kingdom of God and he's preaching with authority. And they know that he is, many know that he is the Messiah at this point. And what he is teaching them, what he's teaching us tonight, is the standards of the kingdom. He's flipping everything on its head right now. Um, he's letting them know that the religious system that has been perpetuated to them is, it is faulty and it is hypocritical at best. And he is, I don't know if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount like this, but this is God in flesh communicating to his people what he desires of them. Sometimes we find ourselves in our relationship with the Lord and we say, Lord, if you will just show me what you desire of me, I will willingly obey. And sometimes we're expecting these great um, momentous steps of faith where go take the mountain for God or take this great step of faith. And that's not always what the Lord desires to show you. Sometimes what he desires is a simple obedience in the same direction. Entrusting that, um, you, that, entrusting that you are trusting him to lead you into his will for your life. Paul would say this to the church of Thessalonica. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Jesus is going to be dealing with the deep things of the Christian life. He's going to say uh, in verse 21, You have heard that it was said of old that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. He's going to say in verse 27, You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall, not commit, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that whoever looks on a woman with lust to lust for her has already committed adultery, notice, in his heart. The Lord is far more concerned with the issue of the heart. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, he's going to be dealing with some very difficult things. He's going to elevate us to a higher standard. That it's not just what we do and what we say, it's how we do what we do and why we say what we say. I love how this natural progression from the Beatitudes um, into these two statements in verses 13 and 16 about what we actually are. He's going to call us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. It's amazing to me. He doesn't say you should, you should become the salt of the earth. No, he says you are the salt of the earth. Look at verse 13 with me. He says you are the salt of the earth. This is, this is, we can't skip over the immense importance of what Jesus is saying here uh, because salt had a great significance in biblical times. Salt was an extremely precious commodity in biblical days. The Roman soldiers sometimes were actually paid in salt. You've heard the, sa the statement that you're not worth your salt. That's where it came from. Roman soldiers were often paid in salt. It was a, it was a form of currency in that time. It was used for many things. It was, it was used to preserve meat. It was used to slow decay. Um, it was used as an antiseptic in, in, in medicinal use. 
Obviously, it was used to give flavor uh, to food that was eaten. And that's what the Lord is telling us. We bring the savor of Christ to this earth. This world is full of death and decay. This world is full of sin. And sin, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And that when sin is full grown, it brings forth death. We, we navigate in a world that is full of dead men. Right? What does the Bible say? Before we came to Christ that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we weren't made alive until we were made alive in Christ. We walk around in this world full of dead, tasteless people. And we bring the savor of Christ to this earth. We, the, the salt that we bring into to wounded situations slows the decay of this earth. It's a calling. Um, the, the words of Christ are not meant to be, to be read through quickly. They're, they're to be read through meditatively and thought about. Because when you, at, when you stop at a punctuation mark, I've always been taught this in studying the Bible and you Bible students here, when you get to a comma, you get to a semicolon, you get to a period, stop and think. Don't just read right through. Meditate on what's being said. Jesus is calling them, you are the salt of the earth. What does this then mean to me? It means I need to be what I've been called to be. I need to have a take on the nature of everything that salt does. And I love how simple the Lord is. He's not over the people's head. He's using common day, every, everyday things that these people would know to illustrate a biblical truth or a principle of the kingdom. They, they didn't have refrigeration in the day. They didn't have the ability to, to store food in refrigerators. So what, is, what would they do? They would salt the meat to preserve it. We are the only thing that, that brings pre- preservation to this world. Don't forget that. The only reason why all hell has not broken loose on this earth today is because the church is still here. But when the church stops being what we have been called to be, notice what takes place. Read on with me in verse 13. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus is referring to us again as salt. And he says, says that we're not fit for the ground or for the dunghill if we've lost our saltiness. What does this tell us? This tells us that we have worth. We are valuable to the Lord. Right? Doesn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10 that um, not one sparrow falls to the ground without your heavenly Father taking notice? He says, don't worry about your life because you are of more value than many sparrows. Our life has worth, but our life only has worth as much as we are bringing Christ into every situation that we walk into. But when does salt lose its saltiness? When it's watered down. We can't allow ourselves. This is more than anything. This is an exhortation to our own devotional lives. This is an exhortation to our own personal relationship with Jesus. Because we're only going to be able to give off the the savory taste of Christ as much as we spend time with Him. And if we don't spend time with Him, we have no value for His kingdom. You're the salt of the earth, right? What is Colossians 4? I believe it's verse 6, around verse 6 or verse 9. 
He tells us to let our words always be seasoned with salt. That's a challenge to us. Because what does the Bible say? That whatever proceeds out of the, the heart of man is what condemns a man. Our hearts need to be rightly related to God if our words are going to be seasoned with salt. The Sermon on the Mount, it's a heart issue. It's about keeping our hearts rightly related to the Lord. Which is encouraging to me because that is the only thing in your life and mine that is ever going to ever give us any true contentment. That's ever going to give us any true freedom, right? Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. If you're constantly giving out, and we feel like this at times. If you're a true believer and you're, you're walking in this world and you're seeking to serve those around you. If you're constantly giving out and you're not taking in, you're going to burn out. If you're constantly giving out in your marriage, if you're constantly giving out if you're a parent here, if you're constantly giving out to your children, if you're constantly giving out to those around you, and if you're not seeking the quiet place to receive the truth of God that deals with the, the, the condition of your own heart, that deals with your own cares, that deals with your own needs, you're never going to be effective. And what are you going to do? You're going to lose your savor because you're not spending time with him. This is an exhortation to relationship. He's not saying you need to go out and be this. He's saying, no, you are this. But you can only be this as much as you are rightly related to me. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, this is a warning. This is an exhortation. It's an encouragement because our, our life has value. Like salt had value in Jesus' time. Salt served a, a tremendous purpose because if meat is, isn't preserved, meat's not getting, getting eaten. There's no sustenance. Has no value. You have value. And so the Lord is saying, be what I've called you to be, but first be with me. We see this modeled in the life of Christ, right? How many times in, in Mark chapter 1, in Luke chapter 6, in Matthew chapter 14, even all the way up until the Garden of Gethsemane, he sought a quiet place and there he spent time alone with his Father. He prioritized it. Jesus constantly giving out, constantly moving, constantly healing, constantly meeting the needs of others. But what do we know is true about the Lord and his humanity? He had needs that needed to be met as well. He spent time in prayer. He would say, I only say the things that the Father tells me to speak. I only do the things that the Father tells me to do. This is the model, right? So he goes on to say in verse 14, you are the light of the world. Again, he doesn't say you need to become this. He says you are this, which is encouraging to me because what did he call himself? He said, I am the light of the world. He who walks with me shall never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He's calling us to be like him. But again, in this, this verse, in its simplest form, um, if we are not lighting our wick at his candle, we are never going to emanate his light. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. I love this um, illustration of being the light of the world because in this time again, there was no, no electricity, so everyone had oil lamps. Oil, what do we know in the scriptural, oil is a type of the spirit. Jesus would say, if you would read Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 1 through, through verse 13, 
he gives a parable of the, the ten virgins, five wise and five foolish. And what did the wise do? They took oil for their lamps and they, they kept their wicks trimmed. And we need a, what, what was the, the, the high priest's job, excuse me, the, the priest's job within the temple? To keep, to keep the wicks trimmed, to keep the oil filled. We need to do the same in our lives. We need to keep our wicks trimmed. We need to keep the oil filled. That's why Ephesians 5 tells us to, to not be drunk with wine, but, but be continually being filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be seeking to be filled continually with the Holy Spirit, but we also need to keep our wicks trimmed. Lamps must be maintained. Candles must be maintained. I did some research on wicks this week. I'm like, Lord, what? I don't understand this. I need to, I need to understand the importance of of trimming a wick. So forgive me as I read some things to you. Um, apparently, when wicks are trimmed, you can expect the candle to give more light. Untrimmed wicks can cause a candle's flame to take on a dull appearance, which affects the amount of light that it gives off. Trimming the wicks allow the flame to burn clearer and to burn brighter. Trimming candle wicks helps the candle last longer. Longer wicks tend to burn out faster. When wicks are trimmed, you get more out of the candle. There's so many spiritual truths that we receive the wisdom of Jesus. When you're maintaining your light, you give more light out. When you're maintaining your light, your light burns brighter. When you're maintaining your light, your light burns longer. But when you're not, what do, you, what do you all know? When you don't trim a wick, it gives off more soot, right? You're not seeing as much light. You're seeing more smoke. And so we're called to maintain this light in our life. We're called to maintain the inner man. Christianity is, is it's, it's heart work. It's you maintaining a relationship with your Savior, knowing that you have a God that loves you. Nothing is going to light your soul on fire more than knowing the one who loves you and saved your soul. We can't forget this. We were created for oneness with God, for fellowship with God. We were created to experience the power of truth delivering our souls. Only once our soul is delivered can we be used to deliver the souls of others. Right, I, one, one of the old preachers would often be quoted to say, it takes a free man to free men. If you're not experiencing the light of God's word uh, having effect in your own heart, in your own mind, in your own life, you're never going to give light to others. If you're not trimming the wick in your own life, if you're just letting the light go unattended in your life, and eventually it's going to burn out and it's going to burn dimly. It's not going to be bright. He says, you are the light of the world, verse 14. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. The Lord is so simple here. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. Why? Because what happens? If it's not getting oxygen, it's not burning. It goes out. But on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. One thing I love about this illustration is that lights don't speak. They just burn. Light brings light to the darkness, and that's what we do, 
Right? The Lord gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us wisdom. He gives us discernment. That's why your unsafe family members can't stand being around you. Because you bring light. It's, it's conviction. It's nothing you're saying. It's just you being a light. You step into an environment and, and you receive persecution. Why? Because you're, you're dragging out what is in the darkness and you're bringing it to light. That's what the truth of God's word does. It brings sin out into the light so sin can get dealt with so that people can experience the power of God in their lives and they can be rightly related to their Savior. He says this, verse 16. He says, let your light so shine, notice, before men. This is your calling. You know, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? We sing it to my children. Don't let Satan blow it out. I'm going to let it shine. Let your life shine. Don't allow the things of this world, the deceitfulness, deceitfulness of riches, the desires for other things, idols that are set up in your heart, dull your light. You're called to be salt. You're called to be light. You're called to be these things. And you're never going to have true peace and true contentment until you're just letting yourself be what God has called you to be. And here it is, where he's called you to be it. Sometimes we're so focused on getting out of our situation that we're not shining where God's put us. Sometimes we're so worried about what God's going to do next when he just wants us to, to just occupy a space and give light to that space. We can so often be worried about going here or going there or God, where are you, what are you, do, what are you doing? How many of us pray that prayer, Lord? What are you doing in my life as if he has any obligation to tell us? He doesn't. He wants us to trust in him and be what we've been called to be where he's called us to be. At trusting, if he's called us to be elsewhere, we would be elsewhere. He's provident. He works out his plans in our life. We serve a God. He's going to say it in Matthew chapter 6 next week. He's going to tell you, therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life. That is an audacious statement to make. What do you mean don't worry about my life? And yet we have the Lord telling us, don't worry. Because what does worry do? It dims our light. It doesn't allow us to emanate him. Paul is the greatest example to me of this. He's in prison. He's shining his light. He's speaking before those who are persecuting him. He's just being where God's called him to be, and he's doing what God's called him to do, and he's completely content to just be what God's called him to be, where God's called him to be it. What does that take, though? It takes surrender. It takes taking up your cross and following Jesus. It takes this active trust. What is trust? Trust is faith applied when faith is tested. I could sit here and say to you, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge God and he'll direct your paths. That's easy for me to tell you, but it's difficult when you walk out of these doors to actually do it. Because when you walk out of these doors, your faith is going to be tested. You can have faith in this moment when God's speaking to you, but as soon as you walk out of here, your faith is going to be tested. That old man's going to raise up. Your mind's going to start trying to deduce God to your logic. And you're going to say, I don't see it, Lord. I don't feel it. I don't know how you're going to do it. And when you have the opportunity to trust God, you fail. Instead... If you could say, Lord, I believe you are God. I really believe that I serve the God of the universe. And I believe 
because Scripture proclaims that I am the object in which you have chosen to bestow divine attributes upon. Your mercy, your kindness, you're full of compassion, you're slow to anger, you're forgiving and you're kind. And I believe that you love me. And I'm going to choose to believe that every moment of every day. And you know what that's called? That's called maintaining your heart before God. And when you're maintaining your heart before God, you're not worrying. And when you're not worrying, you're being a light. It's all so simple, but we complicate it so much. You've all, if you're a part of this church, you know that we've had uh, three recent deaths here that hit very close to home. Uh, Kathy Barrett was our uh, chief administrator here. Pastor Jesse was um, um, he was just a pillar here for many years. And I'm not crying because, like, for any other reason than the impact of his life, of him just standing in that hallway and being a light where God's called him to be a light. And sometimes we can think, my life has no value. Our life takes on value when we start surrendering and allowing him to use us where he has us. Every life you invest into is letting your light shine. And God in his grace sometimes hides to our visibility how much he's using us. It's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. But if we will just let our light shine, if we will just be the salt of the earth, if we will just surrender and to just trust the process in which he is working out his faith, faith in our lives, God will begin to use you. I don't know why he calls some guys to be like David and just take Goliath out at 17 years old and why he calls a guy like Abraham to wait and never see the fulfillment of, of the true fulfillment of a nation being born from him. I don't know why. But I do know his end game is the same. It's all growth and faith. That's why it's so foolish to, to compare yourselves. That's why it's so foolish to say, God, you're working in this person's life, but not in my life. No, no. And it's not the same at all, actually. Sometimes God calls you to be a Joshua and walk into the promised land. And sometimes God calls you to be a Caleb and wait and, and follow a man until you're older. And then he gives you your mountain. But the end game is the same. It's all the production of your faith. It's all the production of just being what you've called to be and being content in how God works in your life. But if we're so worried about what God's not doing, we're never, gonna be, we're never going to see what he desires to do where he has us today. Let's move on. Verse 17. Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. This is such an amazing statement. Because again, he's not talking to religious leaders. He's talking to the common people. He's talking to the common. These people love the Lord. Love, love the God of their fathers. Were waiting for the Messiah. Thought that, he was that the Lord was coming in to bring in some new religious system and, and be contrary to the law. And he wasn't. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of the law. In flesh, 
standing before you. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Verse 18. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, he's saying some very heavy and some very weighting things. When you would look at the scribes and the Pharisees, they were the most righteous. They were the standard of righteousness in this day. And what Jesus is saying, unless you exceed it, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. So the question is, where then in lies our hope? And what he's pointing to continually is their inability to do anything in the Sermon on the Mount apart from him. Because he's going to say to not commit murder, but murder really takes place in your heart. To not commit adultery, but adultery really commits, is committed in your heart. He's going to tell you to love your enemies. He's going to tell you to go the second mile. He's going to tell us to do a lot of things, but what he is beginning with is the standard of righteousness which you and I cannot keep. Now this could discourage you or this can encourage you. Because all of our righteousness, the book of Isaiah tells us, is as filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. So then how do we begin to meet the standard? Through Christ alone, through grace alone, through faith alone. We are insufficient. I love this because he doesn't tell us to be something or to do something in verses 13 through 16. He says that we are these things. And now he's going to tell us to do some things that we cannot do in and of ourselves. This sermon is meant to cause us to cast ourselves at the feet of Christ and to trust him completely. Unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. How do we receive then this righteousness? Through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of it all. You want righteousness? You want access to God? You don't have access to the Father through keeping these laws. You have access through me. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and I'm the only one that can finish this work. And you need to stop doubting that tonight. You need to stop doubting your, your justification, right? What is salvation? It's not just the, the subtraction of sin, but it's the adding of righteousness. And this, this truth is not contingent upon how you feel. If you've given your life to Christ, you are righteous. You have the same righteousness of Jesus, as Jesus Christ. Why is that so hard for us to believe? Because Satan is the accuser of the brethren, Because he condemns us? Because a heart condemns us? But we just need to accept this truth. No, I'm righteous. And what does this do? It gives us confidence in our relationship with God. It it produces humility. Because we can't do enough good things to be accepted by God. Freely he gives, freely we must receive. Verse 21 He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, 
and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. He's going to be taking some of these commandments and he's going to be teaching the true meaning of them. He says, but I say to you, whoever is angry, now this nails all of us. There's no one in this room here tonight that can go through this and say, I'm good here or I'm good there. I don't care who you are, how righteous you seem. There's that one time that you've been angry with someone in your life. This, what does this do? It puts us all on the level playing field. God is a respecter of no persons. We're all equal in Christ. We're the, God is a respecter of no man. And so this nails me. It nails all of us. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. How many people, have we, as we have watched the news today, have said, you are a fool? Guilty. And so what does the Lord tell us? Verse 23. He's obviously brought this to a whole other standard. Right? He's obviously exposed our hearts. He says, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is hard. Christianity is hard. Because this makes us address difficult situations. Right, you might have read verse 22 and say, it says, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of judgment. And you might sit here and say, well, I have good cause to be angry. And you may. But what does the Bible also say? Be angry and what? And sin not. Verse 23 opens up something huge in our prayer lives. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. We need to search our hearts. Have we offended somebody? Have we hated someone wrongfully? Look, what I'm not telling you to do right now is if you're bearing a grudge to walk out of here and call a bunch of people and say, sorry, dude, I've hated you, I've hated you, I've hated you. That's not always the wise thing to do. In fact, that's not always what God is calling us to do. But we do need to be repentant and transparent. We do need to know, am I holding a grudge that is not pleasing to the Lord? And has this anger caused me to sin against a person? And has it put me in a situation where I've slandered a person? And if they know it, and if the Lord is asking you to do it, you need to repent before God and before man. Now, how do you do this? With humility. You do it with prayerfulness. You ask the Lord to open doors and to prepare the way. Because you can't trust your emotions. You need to ask the Lord and say, Lord, if this is you dealing with my heart, put this person in my path. 
If this is you working in my heart, bring that person my way. And Lord, work on this person's heart. Be reconciled to your brother. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. He says, then come offer your gift. We could be hindered in spiritual progress because we're holding on to things in our lives that are causing sinfulness in our lives that the Lord is asking us to deal with. He says, verse 25, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him. Lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid every last penny. What is he telling us? He's telling us to pursue right relationship with God and right relationship with man. To be right before God and to be right before man. To be a Christian. To allow the Lord to work relationally in your life. There's been so many times in, in people's lives around me that I know that are seasoned Christians who have been quick to do this and, and, and quick to apologize and say sorry and I'm sorry if I've ever offended you or know why they offended someone and, and I apologize for doing this to you and the apology has not been accepted but that person walks away, and what do they have? They have peace with God. It's not really about anything else but that first. Lord, am I rightly related to you? Do I need to make myself right? Is it uncomfortable? Absolutely it's uncomfortable. Is it humbling? Absolutely it's, uh, it's humbling. But I wouldn't trade my peace with God for anything in the world. And that's what God desires for us. He goes on to say in verse 27, You have heard that was, it was said to those of old... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his, in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable that you should, excuse me, it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than your whole body be cast into hell. Obviously, again, Jesus elevating the standard. What do we have to do to live this successfully? We have to have a high view of marriage. We have to honor the marriage covenant as God honors the marriage covenant. This is how serious he takes marriage. We live in a world who, that is cheap in marriage. Is marriage easy? No, marriage isn't easy. Is marriage challenging and it doesn't have its difficulties? Absolutely. But it's a, let me just, I don't want to get too off topic, but let me just say this. It's a commitment. It's, it's a commitment for life. And the Lord desires purity in a marriage. And he desires a spouse to know. Don't, girl, women, don't think you get away free easy on, on here either. This, this is for all of us. If we look at someone with lust in our eye, in our heart, excuse me, we commit adultery. And what is, uh, adul adultery is, 
is a penalty of death in the Bible. It's not something that's taken lightly. And so what do you need to do? You need to guard your eyes. You need to guard where you go. You need to, to realize that uh, your phone is probably your worst enemy at times because it allows you to enter into something unguarded. You need to guard your feet. You need to guard where you allow yourself to go. You need to guard what you allow yourself to see. Look, let me just say this. To be tempted is not sin. Right? Jesus was tempted and uh, Jesus was sinless, right, in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4. When you, when you begin to understand this, there's so much freedom in your relationship with the Lord. We're, we're tempted when we're drawn away by our own fleshly desires. And you may have a problem with lust here tonight. And you may say, Lord, take this desire out of my heart. I don't want this anymore. I have a problem with pornography. I don't want this. And that's a wrong prayer to be praying. Because the prayer to be praying is, Lord, I do want this. Because if you didn't want it, it wouldn't be temptation. And so the real, real prayer is, Lord, change my heart. And what are we back to right now? We're back to where we started. Maintaining your heart before God. How do you maintain your heart? You, you control what you allow into your eyes. Jesus is going to go on to say in the Sermon on the Mount that the, that the lamp of the body is the eye. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And how great is that darkness? We live in a generation whose spiritual senses are dimmed because we have things that convicted previous generations we don't even wink at anymore. Things that, that we see in the daily. Previous generations would, would be flabbergasted if they lived in this world right now. And yet we, we, we've become so accustomed to this world. I, I cringe of the day when the church is no longer deeply grieved and offended by the promiscuity of this world or by the language of this world. It should offend you. You should be offended by it because you are a Christian. It should grieve your spirit because you are a Christian. It should hurt your heart when you look at the, um, the LGBTQ agenda. Why? Because what do we know? It's destroying lives. It's destroying people. And what do we do? We love people. We should be offended that, we should be brokenhearted that the average age for a child to be exposed to pornography is nine years old. That should break us. And we should be pleading on behalf of the Lord, on behalf of these children to the Lord. And you may be a victim of that. And you may be, that, that might be weighing in your life here tonight. But the truth is we carry the only message that can free these children when they grow up and they begin to know how destructive this will be in their marriage and how destructive this will be in their own sex life and how destructive this will be in their parenting and how destructive this will be in every other relationship. We should be offended at these things. And if we're offended by them, what should we do? We should seek to stray away from these things. Christianity is not seeing how close we can get to the line without crossing it. Christianity is saying how, how far away can we get from it so that we're not... The Bible says we're to, we're to even to hate the garment that is defiled by this world. 
The Bible tells us we're to come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch the unclean thing, the Bible tells us. Read 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 7. And do not use the excuse, I want to become like this world to reach this world. No one that's like this world will ever, will ever reach this world. Uh, newsflash, Christianity will never be cool. There's no such thing as a cool Christian. Because the world hates what we represent. This world is antichrist. So if we're trying to become like the world to reach the world, I don't know about you, but when I was lost in my sin and I was at the end of my rope, the last thing I needed was someone like me. I need someone who is walking in the light. I need someone who is experiencing freedom in their own lives. Jesus says in this, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. He's not obviously telling you to be practically pluck your eye out, but he's telling you, deal this drastically with the things that are stumbling you. Why are we playing games? You want power in your life? You want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit? We want, we want Book of Acts power, but we, we don't want Book of Acts Christianity. Deal with the things that are stumbling you. And you alone know what those things are. But this is how drastic the Lord calls us to deal with them. This ranges from anything, from relationship to the things. It's amazing to me in the parable of the sower and the seed, what choked out the fruitfulness of the seed? The cares of this life, the, the deceitfulness of riches, and what? The desires for other things. What do thing things become in our lives? They become idols. And they steal our hearts away from God. Could be anything. Could be anything. Are we willing to pluck it out and cast it away? Because he says, the Lord says, for it's more profitable that you should, for one of your members to perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. What is worth your eternity? He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members should perish than your whole body to be cast into hell. And you're saying, well, this is hard. Yeah, it is. The things that bind us are not easy, not always easy uh, to be dealt with. But Christianity teaches me, the Lord teaches me, that I'm not called to deal with it on my own. I'm not called to um, obey him out of my own strength. In fact, you can't do this in your own strength. The Holy Spirit's showing you here tonight what these things are in your life that you need to deal with. And maybe you've tried to deal with them and they've come back and it's, it's just been this constant tug of war. You'll have success for a week and then you'll fall and then you'll live in condemnation, and then you'll have success for a week, and then you'll fall, and then you'll live in condemnation. You know, that's not the Christianity God desires from you. But when you get desperate enough, God starts moving. When you get sick enough of your sin, God starts moving, and he's waiting for you to give it to him. He's waiting for you to realize that you can't. He's waiting for you to realize, I can't do this in and of myself. 
And it takes a broken man, a broken woman, behind a closed door, on their face before God, acknowledging they can't. And that's when God moves. So as hard as these things are for us to deal with, they're also very encouraging to me. Because I'm tired of pretending like I can. God starts moving when we begin to realize we can't. And we just start enjoying a relationship with God. And our doctrine's good, so we know he's not condemning us. But he's willing to work if you're willing to give it to him. We see this, what, what is the message of Christ, the life of Christ, throughout the Gospels? People, weakness encountering power in their lives change. Woman with the flow of blood. If I, could, if I could just touch the hem of his garment. And what does she do? She puts it all on the line. To touch him would make him unclean. To, touch, to go in the crowd would make everyone unclean. She puts everything on the line. She throws away everything that matters. In the same chapter, Jairus' daughter is at the point of death. And he says, Lord, come to my house and touch my daughter. She's at the point of death. And then the crowd is thronging him and this woman touches him and he stops. Imagine the feeling of that father. Why are you stopping? My daughter is dying. And she gets healed and as soon as she's healed... A man comes from Jairus' home and says, don't bother the teacher, your daughter's dead. And he looks at Jairus and he says, do not be afraid, only believe. And what does he do? He encounters her deadness. Weakness, something with no power in it, encounters the power of God. Desperation encounters hope. But he waits for us to get desperate enough. And I'm thankful for that. Because we're too prideful and arrogant. And we think we got it. The best thing that you can do in your relationship with God is say, I don't got it. <laughs> Lord, I, I don't have it. And I need you. And he comes into the situation. And he changes your life. And you start enjoying Jesus. And you start becoming salt. And you start becoming light. Let's not overcomplicate this. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth in it, Lord. Thank you for your willingness to take on human flesh and suffer like we suffer. Um, To teach what you taught, Lord. Lord, help us, Lord. We can't do anything on our own. Lord, and I pray as we leave here tonight that at some point in our evening we would seek a quiet place and, Lord, and to just find you there, Lord. To hear your voice, to experience your touch, to know your power. Lord, we believe that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. We believe that you love us and that you have great plans for us. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would Have your way in our lives, Lord. Help us not to doubt what you've shown us. Help us to move forward in power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.